0: You're listening to That'll Preach. We've got an interview lined up today with a topic that I've had a lot of questions about, and I think uh, probably most people have questions about uh, understanding whether we can trust the Old Testament and understanding sort of uh, the transmission of the text. Always get a lot of questions about this, and I'm really excited to have our guest on today. We have Dr. Peter Lee, he's a professor of Old Testament and dean of students at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Uh, Peter is a church planner, a pastor, and an expert in ancient Near Eastern languages, and uh, he also has six kids, lives with his wife in Maryland, and uh, we're glad to have you on, Peter. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate the invitation to be here for you today. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself on on how you got on this journey and in, in, in making uh Ancient Near East language is something you wanted to do scholarly work on, and, and getting involved in just studying the Old Testament. What was what got you on that path?
1: Well, yeah, Brian, I appreciate the question. The um, you know, I, I guess the, the path for me in Old Testament studies started uh, in my seminary years as well, and um, uh, I came into seminary a little raw, uh, very. Um, uh, unaware of what exactly I was going to get myself into I wanted to be a pastor and so I knew I had to go into seminary when I was in seminary um, the Lord just provided for me some really great teachers of the Old Testament um uh, Dr Meredith Klein being one uh, Dr Mark Victado being another one someone who perhaps you also studied that's work. right I had
0: him yeah he was a great yeah. teacher
1: oh yeah he was um, his class on the Psalms are just amazing he yeah. he was my teacher for biblical Hebrew. Uh, you know, these guys and these uh, teachers really made a lasting impact on me uh, as a student. Uh, I was also introduced to the writings of Gerhardus as Voss, of, uh, of Mary Klein and, and others. And the more I began to read and the more I began to study under these men, the more I just fell in love with the Old Testament. And I knew uh, very quickly in my seminary years that this is something I really wanted to do beyond seminary and just study this academically. And so when I graduated, I went into pastoral work for a little bit, uh, but I knew I wanted to go back to graduate school and to study these things even further. Uh, I remember talking to Meredith Klein about this when I was a student and and Dr. Klein suggested that if you wanna study Old Testament, the way to do it is not to study Old Testament theology, Old Testament hermeneutics, what you want to do is study the ancient Near East, the culture, the history, the language, um, and uh, and he re- and he really encouraged that being the doorway to us to uh, getting into Old Testament studies. And so, uh, when I graduated from seminary, I came out here to Maryland, the DC Virginia area. Um, I pastored for a while, uh, uh, and then once I decided to go back into graduate school. Uh, because of mark putado he graduated from the sabbatics department at the catholic university here in dc and so i followed in his footsteps i applied there the lord allowed for me to enter and in that program is where i was exposed and learned um, hebrew and the Semitic languages and the ancient uh, literatures of the ancient uh, of the ancient world of the old testament um, and that was sort of my doorway uh, into Old Testament studies, and I've loved it ever since. And and I've never regretted the the way that uh, I took the path that I took.
0: How does your understanding of Hebrew and your your study of the language inform the 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 historicity of the text, or your understanding of of like the, the like what what nuances did that open up for you as you were studying the Old Testament? Yeah, it I mean it is a little
1: tricky because uh the term biblical Hebrew as we uh, use it in seminary contexts as or as you know people may hear is really not a linguistic term. It's not a kind of Hebrew language. It's it's a, it's a Hebrew that's found in the Hebrew, in the Bible in the Old Testament. So it's not a language per se, it's sort of a literary designation. When you read the Old Testament, you're going to find and you're aware of the Hebrew that you're reading, what you find is that there are at least two or three or maybe more dialects of Hebrew in the Old Testament. And and those are the things that you have to learn and understand and read and comprehend and translate um, when you read and study the Old Testament. So so it's something you have to be aware of when you do Old Testament studies. Uh, and it does raise certain questions about the historicity of the text and and the dating of text that that can cause a few glitches here and there that we can we had conservatives who hold to the inerrancy of Scripture to the infallibility of the Word of God as the Word of God. I mean, the Old Testament we we receive as the inspired Word of God uh, that uh, we kind of need to kind of know how to work around.
0: What are some of the challenges when it comes to you know? Understanding the historicity of the text. Um, I remember in seminary we would read about the JEPD thesis. Yeah, yeah. That the text was composed by very different strands, different parties, even of people with different interests, and it's kind of woven together over time. And that just seemed to be dogma in a lot of circles. Um, but I mean, how do how do we think through that? As as you were saying, as people we want to hold to. Uh, the inspired Word of God, want to hold to the original authors? How do we make sense of that? What are some yeah, ways to handle that, that? That's
1: a that's a really great question, and um, and it's something that I think young Christians, especially those who go into secular universities, and sec- I don't mean secular in a derogatory way. I just mean it's just a, not a religious school. And so um, as young Christians go into these secular universities, are they exposed to... Uh, courses in their humanities that deals with the Bible as human literature, they're going to get exposed to a lot of these views that it's going to uh, cause some doubt on the reliability of the Old Testament. Uh, one of the views that are out there is one that you mentioned um, uh, that has been referred to as a documentary hypothesis. Uh, it's been the the suggestion is that the um, That the Old Testament, or at least the Pentateuch, not so much the entire Old Testament, but predominantly the first five books, were kind of put together by various different four major literary sources, and that what you had was an editor who took these four sources, kind of did a cut and paste, a bit of a sloppy cut and paste, put it together, and then voila, we have our Old Testament, we have our Pentateuch uh, as uh, as we have it. Uh, The final date uh, of this edited Pentateuch then is after the exile. So we're talking very, very late about 4th century AD or 4th century BC, excuse me. Uh, What that tells you is that uh, Moses did not write this thing. uh, And it causes some kind of conundrum because one claim that the, uh, the New Testament makes is that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And right. so one question that has been raised is what do we do with this theory here that that's out there? Did is it true? Is it valid? Um, my response to that, I guess, would be, no, I don't think so. Um you are correct, Brian, that in the academic community, the documentary hypothesis is considered orthodoxy, about as scholarly orthodoxy as it can get, that that people have um uh, don't really try to prove it any longer it's just assumed given the fact that there are sources you know what do we uh, what are we supposed to do here now as a conservative i think uh it's i i still hold to certain positions for example i do believe that moses wrote the pentateuch for the most part um but with a lot of the source uh, theory the documentary hypothesis I think it's fair to say that is it possible that Moses used sources and that what we're seeing by kind of the Lord's common grace is some of the ways, in fact, that the, that Moses utilized some of the sources that might have been available to him? I, I think that's a fair conclusion to make. I don't see anything problematic about that. Uh, when we use the word authorship or, you know, Moses wrote something, we kind of use the word writing in a very particular way. But I don't think we can presume that that's what they meant in the Old Testament time in the same way. So did Moses write some? Sure, he wrote some. Did he maybe borrow some sources? Sure, he borrowed some sources. Um, Were there some oral traditions that were kind of handed down from generation to generation that Moses also inherited? I guess I don't see any problem here uh, in terms of the way that the Spirit of God inspired the writing of his text through Moses, and that perhaps uh, some aspect—not entirely, but that some aspect of the documentary hypothesis is helping us see the way in which the Lord has scripturated His Word um, uh, through Moses. So, um, so th- there is a benefit, I think, a gain that we as conservatives can get from from theories like the documentary hypothesis and many others. It, it, the, the tendency that we have as conservatives is to kind of throw the baby out of the bathwater. You know, this is clearly wrong, therefore there's nothing we can gain from it. Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. I think that if we are wise and, um, and, uh, and, and careful and thoughtful, that we can perhaps glean some real benefit Uh, from some of these theories uh, uh, and perhaps appreciate some of the methods without having to accept their conclusions.
0: So it seemed like the difference would be Moses at the time – like his authorship doesn't mean that he penned it all at once or that he could have been drawing from oral traditions, other written sources, and he's the one who's kind of weaving it together, and that's authorship, whereas sort of the more liberal schools of thought would say – there were future um, uh, amendments, I guess, or
1: additions to Moses' original, right, text. right, something like that. Now, again, I do think that Moses wrote a good chunk of it. If there were sources, right. um, you know, he utilized them, uh, but not maybe as a cut and paste thing, but as sources for him to write down.
0: Right, but it wouldn't be sources after that add on to him. Right, right, right. Because so, how do we, you know, what what are some ways that we can Grow in in trust in the reliability that that we do have what Moses intended us to have, or ultimately what God intended us to have. Yeah. How, how do we gain a sense of this is a reliable transmission of the text? There's a lot of work done about that with regard to the New Testament. It's hard to find that about the Old Testament, at least on a popular level. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that.
1: Yeah, well, I think we have the the Word of God that helps us to to assure us of that to some extent. The the Word of God uh, testifies. That the lord preserved the writing of his word uh yeah, th- in the old testament through the jewish community uh to his uh to the new testament church but there's a great verse here in romans chapter uh three in verse two where it says that the jews were entrusted with the oracles of god i mean that's a pretty amazing statement if you think about it that uh they that the jewish community in um, this is the pre-Christian church community. You know, if you think about it, who are the ones who are preserving the word of God during this time? Well, according to the, the Apostle Paul, it was the Jewish community that was uh, that was preserving it through the divine providence of the Holy Spirit, uh, hmm. working to preserve the reliability, the accuracy uh, of the Old Testament text as it was being passed down uh, from uh, generation to Uh, to, to generation. Uh, So that, I mean, so one way, I guess I would encourage people to show that the Old Testament text is reliable is in fact, just first and foremost, just the Lord's divine providence. The Lord is the one who is preserving this text and securing it from generation to generation uh, as it's being received from generation to generation uh, until it was handed down to the New Testament church. And then of course, uh, given to us in our day to day. What, what do rabbis think about the
0: transmission of the text? I wonder, like, today, if do they hold a similar view to conservative Christians that uh, – th- would they reject the JEPD thesis, the, the documentary hypothesis, um, Orthodox Jews today? Uh,
1: it, it'll vary. Uh, mm-hmm. It'll vary. You're, you're going to see that uh, in the same way that uh, we have Christians who are uh, kind of wide-ranging in terms of um, – more critical and conservative views on the, on our scripture, you'll find the same thing within um, the Jewish community as well. What's interesting though about Old Testament, and this is a big difference between the old and the new is um, the, the discussion about reliability of the Old Testament uh, is uh, pretty much uh, a fairly agreed upon thing when it comes to the text. The, there are a few words and, and and there are a couple of books in the Old Testament that are a little bit more um, open for discussion. Uh, and uh, if you compare verses here and there, there are a, a few places here and there that will see some um, some uh, some points of of, of uncertainty. But for the most part, the Old Testament uh as we have it is generally uh, agreed upon as being a very uh a, a reliable text. New Testament studies are a little bit different because it takes a lot more work to kind of figure out what we had as an original New Testament, uh original New Testament letter of the Apostle Paul, for example, because in New Testament studies, as um as you might know and remember we literally have hundreds of copies and fragments of the new Testament that is out there. And, uh, so there is some question about, you know, having to take all of these different copies, compare, contrast, and then reconstruct what, what, uh, what the academic community might see as a, as a reliable, original writing of Paul or, or the gospel of Mark or whatever, uh, we are dealing with here. Um, uh, in Old Testament studies, um, you don't have as that much of a problem because there aren't hundreds of copies of the Old Testament, and of uh, the copies that we have, um, there are only like three to five really uh, 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 ancient versions of, of the Old Testament that we have. But if you compare the those those four to five ancient versions. For the most part, they're pretty much in agreement with each other. I mean, again, there are differences here in certain areas, but for the most part, uh, the re- the text seems to be a very reliable, uh, a real very reliable text. The New Testament, again, it's tricky because you have a lot of copies. Uh, it, 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 interestingly, because we have so many copies of the of the New Testament, it actually works to allow for reliability of New Testament text because we have so many copies to affirm a certain reading you see. It actually people think it's the other way around because we have so many copies, how do we know? It actually works the opposite. When you look at the evidence, there's so many copies to affirm a particular reading that it actually affirms the reliability of a of a of a the New Testament text. But so you've got hundreds of copies of of the uh, of different parts of the New Testament it's all in greek uh the old testament is you have maybe four to five or uh you know you just have a handful of copies of the old testament but they are almost all in different languages so you have to be multilingual uh to do old testament studies and there's kind of the trade-off in terms of the two if you're going to do old testament studies you don't have to deal with a lot of text, but you have to know different languages old, for new testament you have to deal with lots of copies and fragments, but you only need to know Greek. So whichever you prefer, that's the way direction you go.
0: <laughs> is is there a um guys? I've always wondered this where do is there a certain point though where we can't get behind, like we if you don't have a line of transmission of these texts, you're sort of just saying you just believe that God preserved it through this. This people like like if, if again, a Jewish scholar, would they say that like, first of all, I'm, I'm kind of I'm I'm kind of wandering around here, but it's just interesting to me that they would that some would even say that they would accept the documentary hypothesis. I, I think a lot of it is just saying that these are later sources because there's prophetic things and maybe it's a, a naturalistic bent where it had to have been written after the fact they couldn't have predicted it this accurately. Um, but what but why is it? Even debated in like, is there a Jewish tradition in which they go? This is written by Moses. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they they hold strongly to that. Okay. Oh
1: absolutely. I mean, within the conservative Jewish circles, and the uh, big rabbinic Jewish texts, they they do claim Moses wrote the Pentateuch and 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 things of that nature. And uh, you know, I think for the most part, um, uh, we would, as conservatives, would agree to the same thing. They the reason why the reliability of the text is called into question and why people re- uh, uh, will uh, embrace things like the the jedp theory the, the documentary hypothesis is really because of uh, uh, of literary criticism and uh what's interesting also is actually the influences of uh, darwinian evolution in the social sciences now um the the jedp theory is uh follows it presumes a certain evolutionary religious way of thinking and so it, it's taking sort of the uh, uh macro evolution of, of the life sciences and supplying that in in religion in the ancient religion so the presumption here is that something like uh polytheism would be considered a very primitive form of religion Monotheism would be a more developed form of religion, and so on. Now, something like biblical law, like the Levit- Book of Leviticus, for example, would be very sophisticated, very complicated, and considered very further along the evolutionary chain in religious thinking. So, if you think that way, now think about the uh, uh, the history of Israel. You started with Moses and biblical law in the second century BC. You know, 1500 BC, give or take or give or take. Well, you know, according to the evolutionary theories on religion, that just simply can't be possible. It's way too complicated for a very primitive Israelite community to, to embrace. So what they will do is take the Book of Leviticus, the what is considered the priestly code, and date that very, very, very late. And then, and now, call into question. You see that the Old Testament really didn't happen the way that it did, because it's not following a certain evolutionary model. You see, so if you buy into that theory, then there's it's really going to cause a lot of confusion on the date of these texts and the history of Israel and and things uh, of that nature. And so, um, and and that kind of is now kind of the problem. And and you see that uh, not just in uh in in religious thinking but you actually see that the problem of this even in our day to day if you take the macro evolutionary principle and apply that within the social sciences by definition you see we have to acknowledge that some religions are better than others we have to acknowledge that some people groups are better than others Uh, you kind of have to conclude that certain races might be better than others in terms of the evolutionary development of societies and communities. So if you really embrace, and if the evolution of of social sciences is a real thing, you really have sort of justified now racism and abuse and and nobody wants to say that, which Mm -hmm. is why to a certain degree within the secular social sciences, you're starting to see now rejection of this type of thinking and they realize that this actually is a really bad way uh to think uh altogether. And and I would say properly, the the um the JEDP theory is based on an evolutionary approach to the ancient religions and um it it still held to, uh, but it is sh- it is sort of shaking a little bit right now with the academic community.
0: So basically, the documentary hypothesis is racist. That's essentially what you're saying, right?
1: <laughs> well, I, I don't think that. Uh, uh, I think what I would say is that uh, what they do see is a development of primitive to more sophisticated religion. Sure. And that that is what I think I would call into question. But
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's fascinating, because you're right. If, if if their starting point is uh, the Levitical law is too sophisticated. It's too monotheistic. It doesn't fit our timeline for when this thing would have developed. Therefore, we're going to date it based on that. seems to be putting the cart before the horse a little bit.
1: Right. So even the order, the J, E, those term, those acronyms, the J and the E are considered monotheistic texts. Hmm. The D is the book of Deuteronomy, very strong biblical law. The P is uh, representing the priestly code, which is essentially the Book of Leviticus. But you see, by ordering it the way that they have, what they are saying is that the history of Israel, as you have in our Bible, is not really the history of Israel. The actual, real history of Israel is following this J E D P order, and right. that as is something that is uh, again very problematic at, at multiple different levels.
0: Could you sketch out? The, the sto- like what would this be the story that they're telling what would, would they say would Jay would the documentary hypothesis people say that yeah. you know they're in exile and then they they have these old documents and now they just add you know these other ones onto it for political purpose or, or like I, I keep reading these different kinds of reconstructions of the like the utility of the text. but if you just took their view wholesale, how did the how did the old Testament develop?
1: I think what they would say is that um, Uh, You kind of have to start, uh, again, the JEDP, the Documentary Hypothesis, is much more of a literary uh, approach to the Old Testament. It's not a historical one, per se. What it's saying is that the Pentateuch came together as we have it um, through these four sources in that kind of historical evolutionary development. Um, Now, of course, the. The or the order of the text does reflect some level of the history. So although they won't comment on the specificity of the history, what they will say is that you can't, cannot take the Old Testament history as we have in the Old Testament itself at face value. What this is, is sort of a post-exilic reread back to what their ancient history, what they wanted it to be but the actual real history is at least at a general term is following this sort of macro evolutionary kind of evolution of history of religions type of a uh, type of development
0: and so how do they do they construct this timeline based upon evidence of the time that Moses was purported to be alive and they're like they were all pagans there's no way that this happened or you know the time Leviticus was supposed to be written they were too unsophisticated like, wh- how do they come up with that timeline? Is it just studying the culture around in that time, or
1: basically what's... studying the culture around them, studying uh, archaeological discoveries? Uh, but but I think what's important to see is the the evidence, the actual archaeological evidence, the text evidence that they are dealing with is influenced by their presumptions of a a kind of a macro evolutionary development of the religions. Hmm. um in other words the the idea that they are trying to just let the evidence speak for itself is is not what they are doing uh they already walk into it with a preconceived understanding and they are reading the evidence within uh within that context so yes they are pulling out um uh some uh, evidence uh, uh available through archaeology through ancient extra biblical texts outside of the bible and things of that nature, and they use that to support a reconstructed history of Israel.
0: Was there a particular event that made people so critical of the Old Testament? I don't know if, is this a modern thing, like in the Reformation, were they wondering about this or what what kind of spurred them on to
1: develop these literary hypotheses yeah largely i think it was the enlightenment the german enlightenment in the 18th century uh you know where you had uh i mean it wasn't the reformation i mean calvin still held to a very reliable old testament you know it is more or less as we the history of israel is as we have it that the old testament text is uh is a reliable um uh is a reliable trustworthy text um the uh you you know in the centuries after the uh after the reformation as now um you have the rise of enlightenment thinking and rationalism became kind of the new dominant form of understanding just pretty much everything so uh, in other words it everything we know things to be true if it's reasonable we know things to be true if it can be rationally explained. If it cannot be rationally explained, then it cannot be true. And so human reason became kind of the new standard of what is true and not true. Divine revelation was now starting to be thrown out the window. And as soon as you open that door, uh, a lot of the supernatural claims that we hold to uh, about the nature of the word of God and the history of Israel and God coming down and interacting with man, start to become called into suspicion, and that's what we started to see happen there. So so claims like mosaic authorship, the inspiration of scripture, the, the word of God, the scripture as a word of God, was all now starting to become uh, challenged in light of the new uh, critical methods that were being applied uh, uh, to the Bible, and thus the rise of things like JEDP and other uh other methods like that.
0: So it would be like them saying there's no way we're gonna automatically assume that the text cannot be inspired. Therefore, they could not have constructed this Levitical right. structure or monotheism exactly. could have appeared. Whereas if you just grant that revelation happens, it's like then that sort of solves the problem. But but that, maybe we have a bias against that being having any explanatory power.
1: Yes, that that exact that is exactly right. In spite of the fact that the old testament's claim self-claim. Is that it is the inspired word of God um, through prophetic messengers like Moses, in spite of the fact that the Old Testament makes that claim, uh, that is, or more or less rejected uh, as being uh, a understanding of what the Old Testament is.
0: Now, I, a lot of people who would take maybe an intro to Old Testament class at a secular university, or just as you read popular material, a lot is made about how the text borrows other ancient text ideas or compares So one of them is, I'm going to mispronounce it, the Enuma Eilish, something, right. it's a Babylonian epic. It's sort of its own creation epic. There's there's flood epic, all these types of things. What are we to do with that? When yeah. there are these other stories that seem to mirror a lot of what's going on in the Old
1: Testament? Yeah, that, that it's well, first I would say it's undeniable. Uh, okay. It seems undeniable that the Old Testament writers, Moses, David, whomever, um, borrowed uh, some of the um, uh, images and uh, uh, and uh, and uh, thought processes that were with, embedded within the culture of their day, the the text, the Enuma Elish that you made references to, is the Babylonian creation then. It is the Babylonian story of the, uh, and it it's meant to serve really a a polemic in defense of the uh, exaltation of Marduk, the great god of the Babylonians. And what it basically tells is the way that Marduk established himself as the creator king, defeated chaos, and then created the, the, the heavens and the earth and all of humanity. I mean, it's a little bit more drawn out and much sure. more dramatic, actually. You know, hey, that could be the next major movie that they want to make in this trend from, you know, the Lord of the Rings to the, to the, uh, that, you know there was an Exodus movie to the uh, to the Bornea yeah. stuff. This could be you coming know, soon. Hey, do a Enuma Elish movie? That'd be fantastic. I think. I mean, uh, it's just begging for the big screen, right? In terms of the images and things of that nature. But um, the uh, but the Enuma Elish is not the only text like this in the in the ancient world. If you want to celebrate um, the the kingship or the glory of your of your high god. The way that you would do it, there's a certain standard operating procedure in how you do these in all of these ancient myths. Uh, and one of them is to have your your patron deity battle, usually battle uh, water themed uh, type images, battle the waters itself, actually, or wa- battle water creatures that are associated with the deep in the water. So the Leviathan is perhaps the biggest well-known. Kind of sea dragon. uh, And you see uh, uh, Marduk actually defeats a sea dragon type creature. In the Baal text, Baal defeats a sea dragon type creature. You see this consistently in the ancient world. And in the way that, uh, and what this is representing is sort of the glory of their high god in the way that they conquer these sea themes, these water themes. Now, water in the ancient world. Represented chaos, disorder, and death. So, what it's showing is the supremacy of their high God over chaos, over disorder, over death. Now, if that's what's going on, if you wanted to celebrate the God of the Old Testament, the covenant God of the Israelites, as the one and true God of, of who is the king of all gods. The way that you would do that, so that the ancient everyone in the ancient world would understand what you're doing, is borrow those same images and themes. So when you read uh, the Book of Psalms, when you read the Prophets, you're going to constantly see the Lord battling chaos, disorder, or water themes. You could bet the Lord will will conquer the waters, the great waters. He will uh, destroy the Leviathan uh, or sea creatures. He will. Uh, battle uh, the rivers, uh, but that is the way that the Old Testament is communicating to our ancient, o- to their ancient audience, that the Lord is the one who is the real champion over chaos and disorder and death, not Marduk, not Baal, uh, not the Egyptian pantheons, not anyone else. It is really the Lord, and really only the Lord. So, um, the fact that um, the Bible authors would utilize these images makes perfect sense to me. I don't see any problem there. Um, the, uh, In fact, if anything, it, it really supports for me the reliability of the Old Testament because it's exactly using the cultural um, uh, tools that were available to the ancient writers. If it didn't, then the Bible is sort of idiosyncratic. It, it, it's sort of a text without time, without setting. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me the weird thing. It, it it to me it makes sense that the Old Testament authors would write as um as the as other uh, uh, nations would write their texts to celebrate their God. The only difference here is that the true the Israelite God is the one and only true God, and that he is the true master over chaos, disorder, and death. so. You know, uh, it's a thing that you read about a lot in, in, again, in secular universities and the Bible is literature type classes, that the ancient biblical writers utilize these themes and images that were very common in the ancient world. My answer to that is, yeah, they did, but I don't see any problem with that. I don't, uh, and I don't think it should bother uh, God's people at all.
0: Yeah, you're right. It actually kind of shows how ancient the text would be if it fits
1: the style of that. Oh, Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're just talking about myths here, but if you compare uh, set certain sections of the Bible as genres, uh, you can see that they fit uh, other genres of the ancient world. So the biblical writers really utilize the literary means that were available to them as well to inscribe the word of God. And if, but again, that to me makes sense if they would do that. If this, if uh, if if, uh, for example, let's say in our day to day. If uh, the Lord were, were to inscripturate his word, he doesn't. But if he did, um, you know, what is the ways in which that we would we communicate back and forth in our day to day, you know, letter writing, you know, so the word of God would look like a letter. But that would make sense to me that that mm-hmm. that way that the word of God is not idiosyncratic. It doesn't uh, it fits within the literary cultural setting of the day.
0: You talked a little bit about Moses drawing on oral tradition, and so thinking about because I guess people would say that um, Moses is like plagiarizing off of these other stories or these other, <laughs> other narratives. But, but but you could also say that there's a common sort of maybe memory within these different cultures. Oh, sure. Events. How do we understand oral tradition? I I, I remember I think I can't remember. It might have been reading James Jordan or something. Someone was he had this hypothesis that Moses. Had gone a lot of his material from Genesis from an oral tradition from Joseph that Joseph had written down a lot of things. Now I guess we can't really know for sure, and maybe that's part of it that some of these things we we can't n- know for sure. But um, I, how do we understand oral tradition? Just the passing down sure. of well, these Well, first
1: uh, I would say uh, I think oral tradition seemed to have been a real thing. Uh, this is definitely in in a pre-literate community. Uh, before you had uh, the writing down of anything, oral tradition perhaps is the only way that you can really pass down narratives and stories from generation to generation. Um, I don't think it's plagiarism. <laughs> I think that they were intended to be passed down. In other words, they were intended to be memorized by children from pa- from parents, and then their children pass it on to their children. Their children pass it on to their children, and um, and, and that seems to be the idea that when you had something very memorable or something that was special that needed to be preserved. It was passed on from orally from generation to generation to generation. Now, uh people have called into the question because it's oral tradition, isn't there a certain level of unreliability uh because of the nature of oral tradition? Um, well, uh, as much as I appreciate that comment, I, I think that might be true in our day to day because we're just not very good listeners in general, uh, especially true. in the written text day where we have things written down, especially now in a signed by generation where we can't, you know, we can hardly pay attention for five minutes. If your listeners are listening thus far, I commend them, you know, um, the uh, people just don't listen very well. So the idea of oral tradition sounds very, very difficult. But the scientists who have actually studied communities who, have, who do live off of oral tradition have actually been surprised on how accurate it really is. Uh, so the presumption we make that there is some dubiousness in terms of the reliability of transmission in oral tradition, I, I think it's built on our conceit, modern conceptions uh, uh, of oral tradition and how, how we are unable to practice it. And then because we can't do it very well, we just apply that universally. But in fact, when you actually see the way that oral tradition works in societies and communities where they really uh, embrace it, what they have found that it's actually a very, a fairly accurate uh, way of doing things from generation to generation to, uh, to generation. So I, I really don't deny. In fact, I am almost I would be willing to say it's very probable. That when Moses um, was prepared by the Lord to inscripturate his word, some of the Genesis material, the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob stuff, the Joseph stuff, even the pre, you know, the Adam and Eve, the flood narrative, all of that may have come to him to a certain degree in some type of written form that was preserved by that community. I mean, it's hard to say at that point, We really are speculating, Um, but more often. Uh, more probable, I would say, is just a a oral tradition that was passed on, fairly reliable, uh, very reliable, that Moses received, and that he used that uh, for the inscripturating uh, of of the word of God. And and again, so it, it was a real thing. There's no way to really deny that it was a real thing, but it it was not an unreliable thing.
0: Makes a lot of sense. You know, I, today we don't rely on oral tradition like everything's written down and and we can't imagine a day going by without writing stuff down and having to memorize things but i'd imagine if that was your only method of communicating things to future generations that you would center your whole life on being accurate and transmitting
1: it properly i have no doubt of it and again it wasn't like these stories were just told once you know they were probably told over and over and over again and celebrated over over and over and, and over again are you are you a uh star trek fan by any chance brian
0: um i i've i've maybe loosely i mean i've, I've oh, okay. seen Never episodes mind. but i'm you not may, a huge
1: well maybe your listeners may appreciate this okay. thing, but <laughs> in the in the star trek world there is an ancient alien race war called the klingons
0: yeah i've heard the yeah i know the klingons
1: yeah yeah i know in the early Star Trek, I realized that the Klingons, there was some racial problems with the Klingons there, but the newer generation, they're they're fantastic. And one thing you read about the Klingons is that they are a warrior people. And and the way that they preserve the great victories within their tradition uh, is by um, memorializing that in song. And those songs are, repeated and passed down from generation to generation to generation. Now, it sounds silly. It's a TV show. I get it. But as a point of fact, this is the way that many cultures do these things today, that they memorialize momentous events or very special events or people. And they oftentimes will celebrate them in poetry, in song, or in narrative. And that narrative is passed down from children to children to children from generation to generation to generation, and in a very reliable way. And people love to tell these stories. People love to sing these songs. Uh, you know, there's a reason why Amazing Grace is known, almost by memory, in the context of the church. Even non-Christians, to a certain degree, can almost sing the, sing the first stanza uh, of Amazing Grace by memory with pretty much a, a pretty accurate rendition to the way it was originally written. So. So I think, again, the whole notion of oral tradition as unreliable, I think, simply does not uh, stand up to the evidence that that's available to us.
0: Well, let's say that you grant, OK, it's reliable oral tradition. What about the historicity of the text? What Did, did rabbis believe, yes, Abraham was a real man? Noah really existed. There was a real flood. How important was historicity in terms of how... Jews understood it, you know, when they're passing yeah. it down. Do they just, or do they have an understanding? Yeah, this is mythic, but you know, what what is the 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 view of historicity that Israel would have had going through their
1: history? Well, uh, I think well, ancient Israel definitely would have believed in the historicity of their predecessors. So uh, uh, Moses, for example, most definitely would have believed in an actual historical Adam uh Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the the ex the uh the Exodus and enslavement and Exodus would have been a real thing and they would have known that. You no, know, David would have understood the same way. Ezra Nehemiah the same thing. Even the church, even Paul would have understood that the Old Testament history ha- as we have it were actual historical uh, uh uh events. Uh now in the academic community in our day to day that's an altogether different story. Um you have uh, sort of the extreme of some who will say, you know, if, it, if it's in the Old Testament, if it's written down in the Old Testament, we know it didn't happen. <laughs> you know, uh, that's sort of one extreme. And then you have others who, sort of like myself, who see that the Old Testament history as we have it, is a reliable witness to an actual ancient Israelite people and that what we have in their historical text in the Bible is a reliable, accurate history of that ancient Israelite people. Um, but, uh, uh, and even Jews, modern Jews, there are some who actually will be on either side uh, of those discussions as well. So it, it really is a, uh, and there are different factors that kind of cause these different types uh, of discussions and, and questions.
0: Well, when, when it talks about reliable transmission too, I mean, like to what they've understood that Abraham really said this, or this is the gist of what was said, you know, are they, oh, thinking, yeah. you know, the dialogue, the things that God said, are, are they, if you're, you know, in the exile, are you going, no, that's what Abraham said. Or do they, do they have a, sense of there's liberties taken or embellishments, any of these kinds of things? Uh,
1: Well, uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. I I don't know if they would even have asked it, truth be told. Uh, I I think that um, uh, that they would have understood that there were some embellishments. Uh, They, I think would have understood that some of the dialogue may have been truncated just for the sake of the narrative, Uh, but that the, uh, uh, you know, most of the most of the dialogue that we actually have, of like, for example, of God talking to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob um, is, you know, it, I, I don't know if I would say it was truncated in in a in a unhelpful way. I think that what we would say is that, yeah, that dialogue really happened. And more or less, these are the words that were kind of uh, uh, shared back and forth in in those dialogues. Um, But I don't know if they would press it any more than that. You know, in other words, the the text gives you enough of an understanding of that interaction at that one moment. And that's trustworthy to understand what happened historically. And the Jews and the Israelites would have been, I think, content with that alone. I don't know if they would have pushed it beyond that. You know, what more did Abraham say that was not recorded? Or did he really say this word and not that word? Um, depending on the situation they may have asked that but I don't know, I don't think they would have pressed it that hard. I think that um, what they would have accepted is that the text says you know that this was Abraham, this was God that here was God and David that they dialogued uh, in this way and uh, and the text reports it as such and so I just sort of receive it as such but but again the the Israelites, and for the most part, I think, would have realized that there was probably some level of embellishment going on as well. And, and they were okay with that. They seemed to be perfectly fine with that. In other words, in the Bible, the Word of God and the Scripture and the Spirit, if he chose to embellish it in the written form, he had to, uh, He could do that.
0: What would be an example of embellishment? Like, I don't think you would mean like the Exodus was an embellishment. It actually was, you know, but liberties with the rhetoric or, or like what kind of embellishments would you have in mind? well perhaps uh
1: the um the way um that uh, uh, certain uh events were described was about embellished uh uh uh, uh that certain um sufferings that were endured was a, was a bit uh was harsh there's no doubt about that but for for different theological reasons perhaps it was just uh was described in a different way um uh i I mean it's a good question you're kind of and i'm trying to think of an example of one uh but uh uh you know in in, in other i think those things happen and and again it doesn't seem to be a real issue
0: like would it be like the extermination text? i mean those are the kind of controversial ones right would those be embellishments that they didn't really kill them all like i've heard that argument used before um or Uh, not embellishments as in a dishonest thing but Having a more of a rhetorical punch,
1: well, I guess it is uh, I, I'm thinking of someone like Job, perhaps, as an embellishment okay. that you know there was an actual historical figure of Job. He absolutely endured some uh, absolutely terrible, uh, tragic right. events in his life, uh, but perhaps uh, the Book of Job just embellishes a bit, a, a bit of it, just for the sake of of trying to create a certain point and okay. a message that is trying to create the uh some of the things that you mentioned like the the conquest and the um the war against the canaanites uh, i i don't think i would call that an embellishment that i would call it that as an actual historical event it actually happened um it's the ethics is difficult uh and that might be something to discuss on another episode <laughs> um but and we need to uh have an answer to to that and uh, i think there isn't a reasonable explanation for this um uh, uh, but things like that i don't think i'd consider that an embellishment i i uh an embellishment more is taking an actual historical event and just kind of extending the descriptions of it perhaps that's what i would consider an embellishment mm-hmm. i wouldn't consider uh, something like creating. In the event that never happened to me, it's not an embellishment that that would be more of a fabrication that that I don't think we find in the Old Testament.
0: And if an Israelite heard that like this didn't happen, they would be offended. They would be like, "No, that's that's stretching."
1: Oh, absolutely. Our understanding of the text. Oh, ab- absolutely. I think they would uh, they would absolutely. I mean, to a certain extent, the the rationale for the reason God is worthy to be praised is because of what He did in their history. If he didn't act in their history, then it calls into question some of the rationale of why he's worthy to be worshipped. So the historical, the historicity of the text, in some cases, um, you know, has to be a a reliable historical event. Otherwise, it jeopardizes the the worship of God.
0: Switching gears a little bit, and we really can't talk about the Old Testament without talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. I actually got to see the exhibit in Jerusalem. Oh, that's fantastic. Which, which was awesome. Okay. Oh, yeah. we got to look through all that, but can you describe just briefly what is the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls in understanding yeah. the reliability
1: of the text? Well, yeah, that that's actually a really good and important question. Um the okay, when we talk about the Hebrew Bible, um the uh what generally people mean when they refer to the Hebrew Bible is uh, is what, something referred to as a Masoretic text. Now, the Masoretic text, uh, the Masoretes who wrote this text, more or less, were uh, rabbinic Jewish rabbis who received uh, a Hebrew Bible. Now, the Hebrew Bible they received and the Hebrew that was written prior to them was just consonants only. There were no vowels. Uh, now, you know, I realize that sounds weird for us, but uh, but if you really think about it, it's actually not as weird as you might think. Uh, uh, but as a point of fact, it does lack a little bit because there are no mouths. So the Masoretes uh, who received a consonant base text, they began to the sense that Hebrew um, was starting to become unclear and lost, that the reading of the Bible was becoming uh, a little bit vague and unclear. They needed a way to make the the Old Testament completely readable. In other words, they needed a system of vowels. And that's what the Masoretes did. They invented a system of vowels, superimposed that upon these consonants, and now the Old Testament for the first time is completely readable. Anybody could read it if they know the system. Uh, And in that sense, the Masoretic text, the Bible that they kind of wrote here, well, they didn't write it, but the, the system that they kind of made here is now a huge benefit to people like us um, who's studying the Old Testament. But the problem, though, is that the date of the Masoretic text is about the 5th to 7th century AD. So we're talking, you know, 6th to eight centuries after the church. And this is a really late document, as ancient documents go. I mean, we have copies of the Old Testament that are New Testament that are older than this. So because it's so late, people have wondered, you know, just how reliable is this? A witness to the really old documents that were written in the actual Old Testament. And, and I think that's a fair question to ask. Um, now, uh, to the Dead Sea Scrolls, now, I didn't forget your question here. <laughs> in the Dead Sea Scrolls, what, uh, what one of many different kinds of documents that we found there are copies of the Old Testament. And in fact, with the exception of um, uh, the book of, uh, uh, I I believe it's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. um, And, uh, oh goodness, it's been a while since i thought about this. But I I think with the exception of one or two Old Testament books, every Old Testament book uh, is represented. A copy of it was found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the only reason we don't have these other books is probably just because of the accidents of history. They were probably there originally. And they just didn't survive. Now, when you look at the copies of these old test of these Old Testament texts, they're in Hebrew. There are no vowel points, uh, and they are extremely old. I mean, second century, third century B.C. Very, very old copies of the Old Testament. Uh, and then when you compare that to the contents of the Masoretic texts. What you find is that the Masoretic text is actually very accurate and very reliable by comparison. So, one thing the Dead Sea Scroll of many different things that the Dead Sea Scrolls has done uh, is affirm the reliability of the Masoretic text as a reliable witness to an ancient Hebrew Bible, and and that's a huge that's a huge benefit. It's a huge huge thing. And so now it's again it's not perfect. There are a few differences here and there, a word here and there. Um, Some biblical books are going to be a little bit more um, uh, discussed than than others. But for the most part, uh, uh, it's been one of the great discoveries and benefits that we have received here. It is the fact that our Masoretic text is actually a pretty solid, reliable, uh, uh, reliable text.
0: It's amazing the more we talk about this, how much I'm even influenced by sort of enlightenment presuppositions or... You almost have this extremely exacting test you place on an ancient text, and uh, you can almost always find a reason to be skeptical that you overlook the remarkable evidences of a strong continuity over time, like the Dead Sea Scrolls or these types of things.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think we all are. I mean, it's become so part of, our, of the air that we breathe, even here in the 21st century, how much of it we've been affected by. The the modern trends of the philosophies of our day, um, you know, we we still to a certain degree have been affected by the postmodern thinking of a generation ago, and and things of that nature. The um, you know, there's a reason why um, you know so many discussions right now are in the areas of like gender, race, ethnicity. I mean, we're all suspect to or not suspect. We are all susceptible. Uh, to the current uh, political or the public dialogue that goes on around. I think that's okay. That's not a bad thing. As long as we respond biblically and um, and reliably you know, in a god honoring way,
0: uh,
1: it's probably a good thing for us to do and and just to be aware. But we need to be aware of it, I guess, is the point. We need to be aware of what, um, uh, what is influencing our ways of thinking, our values, our virtues. Uh, it should be scripture and Lord willing it is, uh, but to always be aware of other things that may either challenge that or enhance that.
0: One last question. I'm I'm curious about the idea of redactors and this is kind of oh. going in and can a conservative Christian, how would we, you know, is the idea that there were redactors of the text over time, edits, changes, um, how should a, conservative, inspiration-believing Christian deal with those kind of arguments?
1: Yeah, again, a really great question. I I appreciate it a lot. I I guess my thought is, I I think it's okay. I think we as conservatives, uh, ineratists, old supernaturalists, who take the word of God seriously as a word of God, uh, can see redaction, editing work, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, and be very content with it. Now I I think what I would say though is um that the initial writing of the biblical text, let's so let's say Moses wrote the pentateuch. Um had some editing work that was done to it and you could actually maybe see places where that was done. And uh and then we would I think we can say that we can conclude that the uh in editing work of the original Mosaic text was also part of the inspirational work of the Spirit of God. So the initial writing of the text, the editing of the text is all of the ways that the Spirit of God worked to inspire the text as, as we have it. And so there are certain places where I think editing of the biblical text is, is simply undeniable. We can't get around it to uh to a secularist who Rejects the Bible as the Word of God, but takes seriously ancient documents. For us to deny that editing was done to them seems kind of silly, because it's just so blatantly obvious. And and I think I can I would say to that is yeah it's probably true that uh, I don't think we have anything to fear here. I think the Bible is fine, and we just need to observe it carefully. Uh, we need to, uh, and I think the benefits of like literary criticism on Scripture can benefit us. We, I think we can understand the way that the, uh, that they, that the Lord um, put together his word uh, and uh, and observe these things and still see that this is the way that the Spirit utilized the human agents of his day, both in the original writing of the text and at times perhaps the copying of the text and even the etnetic of the text. All of that was sort of a process that the Spirit of God used for the inscripturation. Uh, of his word and I, I i think that's perfectly fine
0: that's really helpful i mean sometimes we think redacting means or editing means manipulative or there's a negative connotation but in some respects i mean i, I guess i don't think moses wrote about his own death that was probably added by someone other than moses or i know they talk about uh, anachronistic words or Words that right. maybe the scribes put it in, but it's all to aid in clarity of the text. So I think there's always this idea that if
1: there's any redactor, it's always nefarious. Um yeah, that's unfortunate. And and yeah. I get that. I mean, any changing of the word of God uh sounds uh kind of scary. <laughs> right, right. And and I and I and I and I, I can appreciate that. I you know, there is a whole clause that says. You know, you are not going to add anything or, or take right. the word out, lest all the curses of this covenant come upon you. You know, that kind of concept you would find in, in Deuteronomy. We find that in the book of Revelation, and we kind of apply that holistically on the scriptures. So any editing is then looked at it with some level of um, of of real concern. Uh But again, I think when you look at the text, we have to conclude that editing was clearly done. You you just made references to the death of Moses. Uh, um, You know, there are some uh, many who will actually say Moses prophetically wrote about his own death because they want to deny any Mm -hmm. editorial type of work. And it's possible, I guess. I don't think we have to conclude that. Uh, But it is. um, But it is possible. I think on that note, you know, the clause that says. you know you are not to add anything on or take away it is more for covenantal reasons uh, at least the original intent of it was so for example if if you go out to uh, uh if you go out to a restaurant and you sign a receipt for your bill uh the restaurant's given a copy of that receipt you're given a copy of that receipt um now you cannot change that receipt so if you if it was for 50 dollars. And you erase a zero and you go back to the restaurant and say, I overpaid. It was I only actually should have been charged five. They can pull out their copy and say, you know, you're you're trying to be corrupt here. You see, you can't do that. Right. The same way that the restaurant can't cannot add a zero, come to you and say, hey, you only paid 50. You should have paid me 500. They can't do that either. That, that clause there uh, it, that says you cannot add or take away is really talking about that type of uh, arbitrary adding or subtraction. Um, as a point of fact, if the covenant parties are agreeable to changing these covenant documents, these types of changes happen all of the time in the ancient world. Uh, and you see updating of texts, um, you know, and things of that nature. And that's probably what's going on in these editorial type things, completely aloud, perfectly fine, and everyone in the ancient world pro- uh, would have understood it then.
0: So how would you just, you know, console a, a believer who is really struggling with like, man, can I really trust this this Old Testament with all its weird stuff and burning bushes and clouds of dust and pillars of fire, all this? How How can I trust that this is actually something reliable that that moses actually wrote this that i can i can look at this and go i'm confident that this hasn't been you know just uh this 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 isn't the documentary hypothesis this is actually what it says it is
1: yeah well it it is tricky i mean especially when we deal with some of these supernatural events you know did did this really happen Uh, yeah um yeah, that's a, that's it's it's a little tricky uh, a question. The you know the, the word of God self attestation is that it is the inspired of God. You know the um, you know when when uh, the Lord uh, established Moses as the first prophet, uh, he made it very clear that he is not going to communicate his word through witches or necromancers or sorcerers. He is going to reveal his word through a prophet like Moses. In fact, it says that God will put his very word, the word of God in his mouth. So that when he speaks, when he writes, he is writing and speaking the very word of God. Um, And in fact, um, you could see that. So when Moses wrote these things, he was inspired uh, of God to do so. In fact, the, the Lord empowered Moses and the biblical authors with his spirit to preserve the, the text from error, to make sure that it's it's authoritative because it's God speaking and not this human author. Um, and because it's the spirit that is, as Second Peter 1, 21 says, carried these human authors along to inscripturate his word. You see, we have assurances here that the Bible, because the Lord used prophetic messengers like Moses and Moses like writers, and the Spirit of God is empowering them, it gives us the confidence to know that this is, in fact, the Word of God. This isn't the Word of man. It sounds like the Word of man, but it's the very Word of God that is given to us. And these are the narratives and the stories and the instructions and the poems and songs and the wisdom texts that the Lord wanted us to receive, even in our day-to-day. You know, First Peter chapter 1. The word was inscripturated through these human prophets uh, for us, is what 1 Peter chapter one verses ten to eleven says. This was given for us and the church. They didn't completely realize it, but the divine inspirational work of the Spirit was written to us. So I would encourage people: don't think of the Word of God only as as human literature, ancient literature, and so forth. It is that. But it's more than that. It is the word of God preserved by the Lord himself to be given to us uh, and to first and foremost, I would say, is to embrace it that way, that this is a text that was written for you, for your edification, for your uh, encouragement, um, for your spiritual nurture and well-being, that these words are written to nurture you, to nourish you, and to read it that way. It's a message of what the Lord has done in Christ for you. And I think that's the way I would encourage God's people to read this first and foremost is, as the work of the redemptive work of the Lord through his own only sign for your salvation, for your redemption. Read it that way. And I think it'll make a bigger, uh, a, a big uh, impact in people's lives.
0: That's well said. That's very helpful. I mean, we all, someone's just like, well, you just assume a theology of revelation. It's like, well. You're assuming a theology, a lack of theology. A la- you're assuming right. a naturalistic worldview. So everyone's bringing something, and and uh, it's a helpful thing to think. Well, why not just believe it at face value? You know, why not just believe what it attests to itself?
1: We don't. We don't put any other ancient document through the grinder. though we do the Bible. If we did, we would be denying Homer. we have been denying Alexander the Great. We'd be denying the Roman Caesars. It's only the Word of God, the Old Testament, that we really put this type of scrutiny and this type of detailed analysis in, and um, and in, in, in a, in a in a very un, unhelpful way. And so yeah, I agree.
0: Well, Dr. Lee, thank you so much for sharing that with us and for being on on the podcast. I'll put some show notes, some links to some uh, to some helpful resources for this. But again, appreciate your wisdom and your scholarly work on this and for spending time with us on the podcast. Well,
1: thank you, Brian. I had a good time chatting with you. I uh, hope to get together again. We can talk some more about uh, other matters of life and ministry and scholarship. I would love that.
0: If you enjoyed this interview, make sure you share with your friends. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and follow us on Instagram at that Preach Podcast. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a message if you want you know, a guest you'd like us to bring on, or if you have a question that you'd like us to ask, uh, feel free to do that. But we'll be back next week uh, with some more content for you. Thanks for listening.